There's something so cool seeing children on stage, excited about what's coming with VBS. And it's just a lot going on. I say this throughout the year. I'm going to say it again today. A church in which there is no crying, you have a church that is dying. Okay? So every now and again, we'll be in a service, you know, and a little baby will give their own ill-timed amen. And we have to remember that there is so much to be grateful for with the children that uh, come through our doors. We are grateful. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. We are in Psalm 51. And so if you, uh, you can go ahead and turn there in your own Bibles. We continue with this series, Words That Know Me, because one of the things the Psalms just do so well is they capture and express the conditions of our heart, oftentimes better than we can ourselves. And so we're journeying through the Psalms this summer together. Now, when I was in my, um, um, actually back up for a moment. One of the objections that I often get when I'm talking with people who are challenged a little bit about spiritual truth or maybe wrestling with the existence of God. One of the most common objections is the existence of evil. In my late teens, early 20s, I kind of went through my own wrestling phase. I was challenged by some people in which just trying to reconcile intellectually some of the claims of the Bible and the existence of God. And that's one of them, and that's real. And in my own journey, one of the things I found as I wrestled through that question about the existence of a good and all-powerful God and the existence of evil is that if you do away with God, the question of evil actually becomes more difficult, not easier. That if there is no God, it's no longer the, the question of how can evil exist with a good God. The new question is, what is evil? And that becomes a much harder question. Because with God, a standard for good and the wicked has been set. Without God, that standard is you and me. And so Richard Dawkins, famous atheist apologist, would say there is no good and evil, just blind, pitiless indifference. That's what we have in the world. And if you don't have God setting a standard, who sets the standard? You and me. We set the standard. And so if I had to summarize all the atheistic philosophers I've read on ethics and meta-ethics and boil it all down, it would basically be this. The good things are the things that you like and want. The wicked things are the things you don't like and don't want. But we don't live that way. No one actually does. I'll give you a situation. Imagine a man with a lot of power and a lot of influence. And he uses that power, he uses that position to take one of his employees' wives, to take her and to force her to sleep with him. And then this man, using his power and influence, has his employee, the husband, sent off and killed in order to cover it up. Now, I don't know how many people it would take saying, That's a, that, I like that or I want that, to make that a good thing in a world without God. But it just makes so much more sense to me to point it and say, no, that's wicked, period. Not that's wicked to me or wicked to you. That story is the story of King David. And the psalm that we read today is the cry of King David's heart after being confronted with that sin. And in a world with God, a world in which God sets the standard of holiness, in which God sets the standard of righteousness, in which God sets the standard of what is good, that which is wicked becomes very apparent. That which falls short, that which is broken becomes very apparent. And in this psalm, we see David acknowledge his brokenness 
in his desperate need and the only one, God, who can actually fix it. And so that's where we're going to be together in Psalm 51, talking about sin, but talking about healing and wholeness at the same time. Pray with me. God, we invite you in this time to challenge our hearts. Lord, we pray for clarity. We pray, Lord, that with whatever it is that we're dealing with, or perhaps, Lord, there's, there's things we've tucked away in the corners of our hearts and our lives that, that you need to reveal. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and you would challenge and convict. For those who need encouragement and refreshment, Lord, we pray that you bring that today. Let us leave here with hope and confidence in the victory that you and you alone provide. We ask all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in Psalm 51. So David, writing out of that, out of those circumstances, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, he writes this. All right? And that's, yes, it is traditionally ascribed to David. But everything I say, if for whatever reason it were written by somebody else, would work just as well. So we're going to go with tradition for now. For those of you out there who are historians, we're going to go with that. And again, it would work either way, but I, I, uh, I appreciate this um, uh, labeled as a Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Verse 1, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin. Note who it is that's doing the washing and the cleansing here. Verse three, for I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me against you. You alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, there's no doubt that David's sin had affected other people. But he's, make, he's emphasizing, accentuating just how much he knows he has grieved the heart of God here. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Verse five, final verse for now. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. First point I want to wrestle with this morning is that turning from sin begins, it starts with acknowledging our sin. Turning from sin, receiving forgiveness of sin, begins with actually acknowledging sin. And David gives us a really interesting kind of contrast to Saul. For those of you new to the Bible, the very first king of Israel was a man named Saul. And then after Saul came David, and then after David came Solomon, and then after Solomon, the kingdom split. And you had Israel in the north and Judah to the south. And so King Saul, King David. Now Saul made some mistakes. David messed up royally as well, pun intended. But Saul made some mistakes. And when Saul was confronted, God had given him, tasked him with going out and completely wiping out a, a, uh, an enemy nation. And Saul didn't fully obey. And Saul was confronted. And when he confronted, he was confronted by a prophet in 1 Samuel 15. His initial response was, but I did obey. It had been pointed out very clearly. No, he did not. But his first dismissive, kind of under, under exaggerating or trying to just make light of what he did. But I did obey. Now David, David, King David saw Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. She's naked. Okay, we have, we have a photo here. Just <laughs> not that kind of church. But she's, he saw her and he wanted her, so he took her. And then he tried to cover it up. Plan didn't work out. And so he had her husband killed. Royal screw up. He was confronted. 
by a prophet. And his very first response was very different from Saul's first response. Second Samuel 12, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Turning from sin, moving away from sin, begins with acknowledging sin. And in this passage here, it's important that we see that includes both sin and sinfulness. Like we, we have to realize that yes, there's things that we do that sin, the action, things that we do that oppose God and his design, but one of the bigger problems is sinfulness. And he actually says in verse five here, he says, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Augustine, writing some 1,500-ish years ago, comments on this. He says, it can only be that here is a kind of propagation or transmission of death, which every person contracts who was born of the union of man and woman. This idea that we sin and act, but we inherit sinfulness from our parents, and both are problems that need to be addressed both of which can only truly be addressed by God. But if we're gonna talk about acknowledging sin, if you've been in the church any amount of time, you know there's some sin, we'll call them the sexy sins, that we post up and that everybody knows those are really bad and if we see it, we call it out. We know that murder's bad, no one's gonna challenge you on it. We know that rape is terrible, we, no one's gonna challenge you on that. We know stealing, that's bad. And then there's sins tolerable sins. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. There's even sins within the church that I will call praiseworthy sins. And you have people who will wrestle with a particular kind of sin for years, for decades. No one will confront them. In fact, people will just compliment you for it because of the way the symptoms play out in your life. And because of that, there is no turning from it and from some of the secret destructiveness it wields in your life and in your relationships and so on. So I have a few, I have a few of these. Praiseworthy sins. The Bible says 365 times, do not be afraid. And yet some of us operate out of a sinful fear. I'm not talking about prudence, I'm not talking about wisdom, I'm talking about fear. And you may get complimented, oh, I'm so grateful how careful you are. I'm so grateful how cautious you are when you know you're operating out of fear, not out of trust. What about greed? The way that we treat our money. And the reason I'm calling these sins, the reason I'm talking about a sinful relationship with things that aren't in and of themselves bad, like money, it's not bad, but when you take the hope and the confidence and the identity that belongs to God and you put it in a thing, that relationship becomes sinful. And you might have someone who's just really, really successful. You, and you may get complimented on your financial success. And you know deep in your heart, you've been stingy. You might call it frugal. You've been stingy. You've been greedy. But people appraise you for it. What about vanity? The amount of time and effort, all right? Hope, identity, confidence that goes into your beauty. But people will say, I love the way you look. Man, where'd you get that outfit? Hey, where did you get that skincare routine? You'll hear people say that, and they'll make you feel great about being vain. People are laughing because it's true. <laughs> what about busyness? Busyness. No time for rest. 
Some people so busy, they don't have margin, even spend time with God, or they convince themselves they don't. So busy, don't spend time worshiping with other believers, but the world will look at you and be like, wow, you're so productive, you get so much done. People in the church will say, wow, how do you do all that you do? Because you're so busy. Now, you're gonna be tempted as you hear these to think about where you see these symptoms in everyone else's life. But my challenge is not to diagnose others. I'm talking to you about you. What about children's activities, extracurricular activities? Someone may come to you as a parent and be like, wow, your kids are so successful. But sometimes those become such gods in the lives of a family that again, families don't have time to rest together. They become such gods in the lives of a, of a child that they, don't, they no longer have time to worship together collectively with the church family. And some kids turn 18 and they leave home and they gotta think about, I've been raised for the last decade to choose other things over church when those things are more important. And they have to recalibrate their minds. What a task, what a stupid task to have to give a child. That's real. But people will say, how successful are your kids? In my own home, the issue, big issue is coveting. I know people can relate. I know parents here can relate. Our world is full of so much stuff and coveting is a heart issue. And with all of these things, people might see it in your life and they'll never call you out on it. And people might see you coveting and not call you out on it. We try with our kids at least once a week. I'm having a conversation with one of my kids about coveting. It doesn't help that the Lego magazines just keep coming. but that's real and it destroys. And some of you heard me say something that is definitely you and immediately began thinking of why you can justify and it's not as bad in your life as you think. Let it sink. These praiseworthy sins are just as destructive as other ones. They're just hidden a little bit better. Turning from sin starts with actually acknowledging sin. Now, David, he, he acknowledges his sin before God, but he wants God to do something with it. And we see him continuing in verse seven. He says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Two more verses. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the, the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Now, the next thing we're gonna talk through is this, that while sin hurts everything, God can actually bring healing. The title of this sermon is, is Healing and Wholeness. And for a lot of these things, you actually will see that when you bring them to God, a lot of healing can happen in the here and now, but there are some things that that full healing or wholeness is just gonna await eternity or whatever, the, the, whatever it is that, that, that God blesses you in heaven. But we do get glimpses of that healing. Some of us experience quite a bit of it in the here and in the now. And as we read this text, we can see the kind of hurt and the kind of pain and the kind of destruction that sin brings just in the way that David is reflecting on what his own sin has done. You see, he mentions being clean, being washed, being purified. Why? Because sin isn't just something you 
do. You don't just feel guilty about something you've done. If you've, like me, I mean, you've done something, you've really wronged someone, sometimes you just feel dirty. It feels like a stain on your soul. You just, you just want to scrub clean. That sin can be infectious in that way. It talks about, he says, don't banish me from your presence because sin, it creates distance between us and God. And in that distance, the joy of salvation gets removed. The joy that only comes from God, the sustenance and the, 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 the spirit that only comes from God. And so David is talking, we get to read because of what he's going through, we can see some of the issues that sin causes in people's lives. Some of the hurt that finds its way in. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we get a list. Giant list. There's a few of these in scripture. This is a big one. This is a list of, of the kind of sin that people give themselves over to. And you can see how it just hurts. He says, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be, here it comes, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, de uh, demeaning, Disobedient to parents. That's my kids right there, right there. You were all disobedient once too. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I'm sure... Everyone in this room sees one or two or more things caught there that describe some of the struggles in their own life. But you see, when we talk about sin in the church, or if you've grown up in the church, chances are the symptoms of sin or the effects of sin tend to be exaggerated in your experience far more than the root cause. Don't you think about it this way. In the world, we have the ripple effects. We have the effects of sin, the injustices, the relational brokenness, the hard situations that sin causes in the world. And the church tries to meet that through justice type ministry, biblical justice. And so we try to meet the brokenhearted. We try to care for the widow and the orphan. We try to, and that's not bad but treating the effects of sin in this world. Then you have the act of sin itself. And our response to that is, don't disobey. Stop making poor choices. Do something different. If you're a parent, it's easy to live here. When, you're, when you just want your kids to do what you want them to do, as opposed to talking to them about their hearts. But you have the effects of sin. You have the act of sin. But ultimately... The root cause is the desires and affections of your heart. That's where things start. And this is why David says, give me a clean heart. This is why God says elsewhere in the Old Testament that he's gonna take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. He's gonna circumcise hearts. That he's gonna take the dry, dead bones. He's gonna bring, breathe life into them. He's gonna take the law off of people's backs and write it onto their hearts because humanity's in a desperate need for a heart change. And this is why Jesus came to do what he did. When God became flesh and lived the perfect life we couldn't in order to go to the cross and die the death that we deserve, pay the penalty for our sins, be our substitutionary atonement. And he rose from the grave on the third day. Whoever trusts and trusts their lives to him gets to share in that victory over Satan, sin, and death. 
But Jesus left and he tells him, I'm sending the spirit. I'm sending the Holy Spirit as a counselor, as a guide, as, as one to convict. Because he doesn't want us to wait for eternity to begin the change. The Holy Spirit is actually meant to come and indwell us. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit and lean on him daily. The Holy Spirit's first name is Holy. And in some parts of the church, you get lots of emphasis on the Holy Spirit, but it's all about what kind of show you can see as opposed to the holy life you can live. And I just want, want to say, like, we lean on the Holy Spirit. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That's how we do what we do. That's how we get heart change. And we want to get to the point. And I saw some people, you're in this middle where you're like, I just want to stop doing this. I just want to stop lying. I just want to stop gossiping. I just want to stop this sexual addiction, whatever it is. One, you're not meant to do it alone. But two, we want to get to the point where you're actually in an environment with people where you're talking about your heart. Celebrate Recovery is a great example of this, by the way, on Monday nights. But it's not just that I don't want to do that, but it's I, I, I don't want to want to do that. I want it to disgust me. And this is David's cry. Give me a clean heart because he knows he desperately needs it. And Jesus came to change hearts. Sin hurts everything, but God, God can heal it. Finally, verse 13 through 15. Back to Psalm 51. It says, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now Berea, Camp Berea has this phrase, you ever go up there, you'll, you'll hear this a lot. Faith is per personal, but it's not private. So I, I stole that, changed it a little bit. Real transformation it's personal, but it's not private. Your journey with God and the change that God works out in your life is personal, but it's not private. There's no such thing as I'm gonna go do this on my own. That doesn't exist in the church. I don't care how introverted you are. It doesn't exist. And in David, what we see is a response to God that is in what he's done in his life that is both vertical and horizontal. Based on what God will do in his life, all right, the yearning of our, of, of our soul, what Jesus has done in our life, what do we see? My mouth will declare your praise. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. When we sing together on a Sunday morning, we are responding to who God is and what he's done. But it's not just vertical. We're not just going this way. We're reaching out. And he says in verse 13, I will teach the rebellious your ways. Sinners will return to you. Because when you get a hold of something that's transformational, you tell people about it. When you have a, a diet that's totally rocking your world, you probably share it with people. Maybe a new exercise routine. Maybe something that's just done wonders with your skin. You probably share it with people. Whatever it is that excites you. And what's so interesting in the church is when it comes to evangelism, the people who tend to be the most passionate evangelists are the ones who have just newly converted to Christianity because they don't know what they don't know. You give them a few years and then they learn what they don't know and they realize there's a lot they don't know and then they stop. But the people who just know they met Jesus are like the woman at the well who runs into town saying, man, let me hear about this guy I just met. 
She doesn't have all the answers. She just knows who we met. And people meet Jesus. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Real transformation is personal, but it's not private. Yes, it's between you and God, but that transformation reaches out into the world and is shared in a community. Now, verse 17 will be our last verse this morning. He says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. He knows he can't bring perfect obedience to God. David knows he can't bring perfect obedience to God. He says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. There's a difference between a broken spirit and a proud spirit. A proud spirit goes to God and says, I'm enough. A broken spirit says, God, you're enough. A proud spirit puts God on trial. God, how could you let dot, dot, dot happen? A broken spirit goes to God realizing he's the judge. When Jesus was telling a parable about two men in the temple, one up front who lived a righteous life bragging about himself, and then he told of a sinner in the back on his knees beating his chest, Lord, forgive me, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that man, the broken spirit, was the one that left justified. Two men hanging on the cross either side of Jesus, the proud one mocking him, the broken spirit who simply said, Lord, would you remember me? To which Jesus responded, today you will be with me in paradise. God knows you don't bring perfection to the table. Do you bring a broken spirit to the table? And all of these things, we begin by acknowledging just how desperately in need we are and how little we have to offer. And that's an important start. In 1977, a 15-year-old boy with cerebral palsy and with spastic quadriplegia heard of a local lacrosse player who had gotten into an accident. This lacrosse player became paralyzed as a result. And there was a five-mile run being put on to try to benefit and help out this lacrosse player. And so this 15-year-old with cerebral palsy and spastic quadriplegia asked his dad, can we run in that race? Now his name was Rick Hoyt and he couldn't run. He couldn't do it. But his dad said yes. Over the next 40 years, they would do about a thousand races. Rick Hoyt would do marathon after marathon after marathon. And in one interview, he said, when I'm running, this is the kid, he said, when I'm running, I feel like I'm not disabled anymore. They didn't just run, they did Ironman triathlons, they swam, they biked. One year, 1992, they biked 3,000 miles across the country in 45 days. And you notice I said they, and when I say they, I mean he, because dad did all the work. Rick had nothing to bring to the table. 
And when they were swimming, he would pick, carry, he would pick up his son out of the bike or whatever the former leg was. He'd put him in the boat and he'd go. And then when they'd finish swimming, he'd pick him up, he'd dry him off, he'd put him back and he'd go. And towards the end, a team built. They called it Team Hoyt. Celebrating Dick the father and Rick the son. So many of us need to realize that if you are going to experience victory over the sin that you've been hiding away, it begins by bringing it to God and acknowledging, I can't do this. I need you. I need you. Rick couldn't have done any of this unless his father made it happen. And he did because he could. But we also have to remember that everything that we do, the battle we wage, our fight in this life, the spiritual war that we're after, that we're not alone. That's why God gave you this. That's why God gave you this team. So whatever it is that's killing you on the inside, whatever it is that you're struggling with in your marriage, in your friendships, in your workplace, in your parenting, you don't have to do it alone. You gotta know that God makes a way and that where there's hurt, God brings healness and God brings wholeness. And he does it for you in the context of a community that is cheering you on. But man, we gotta realize just how desperately we need God. And we have to be willing to actually bring it to him. And so we're gonna close tonight, or tonight, we're gonna close this morning with singing about how much we need God together. I'm gonna invite you to stand. Let's worship. Runs deep.
temptation comes my way And when I cannot stand, I fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay And when I cannot stand, I fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay Talking about sin is a bummer, but the story ends on a high note because of the victory we have in Christ. Amen? If there is something going on in your heart that you haven't shared that you need to, that you need to confess and you haven't, don't leave without doing it. Tell someone, ask for prayer. Okay, there's nothing special about a pastor's prayer. You can come pray with us or you can ask someone else. Get prayer. Tell somebody. Don't just leave it. Bring it to God and he'll bring the healing.